Tonight, I want to look together with you at Psalm number 12. Psalm number 12. And I think a, kind of a good title or a summary of this psalm would be Faithless People and the Faithful God. Faithless People and the Faithful God. I think as you walk through this psalm, you kind of see those two themes set up opposite each other, where the people uh, are viewed as sinful, as unfaithful, as deceptive with their words. Uh, You can't trust them. But on the other hand, the Lord is faithful. His word is trustworthy. You can build your life on it. It is true. It is pure. And so that that runs throughout this whole psalm is uh, living in the midst of an ungodly world, but yet trusting in a faithful God. And that's kind of the tension that the psalm deals with is you have the psalmist really crying out to the Lord. And, and it's described at the beginning in the superscription as a psalm of David. Uh, we don't know any other details about this psalm, uh, about Uh, when it was written, or under what circumstances it was written. Uh, But uh, it seems to be uh, a a time of distress, and and it could be just kind of generically worded to describe the fact that God's people constantly are living in the midst of ungodly people. And we face that pressure, we face um, the persecution, we face the, uh, the slander, of the ungodly. We, we face their uh, deceptiveness and their treachery. And it's like a lament, just crying out to God, Lord, it's difficult living in the midst of an ungodly world with faithless and deceptive people. But he anchors his soul to the faithful and true God. And so it's a good reminder for us because we too, like David, like the, like the people of God throughout all the ages, we live as godly people, as God's people, but in the midst of a godless world, don't we? And so Psalm 12, I think, can be very helpful and instructive to us. David says in verse 1, first of all, the first four verses are really a prayer for deliverance. And so David is crying out to the Lord and asking God to come to the aid of not only him, but to all of God's people. Uh, it, it takes the form of a community lament in which God's people as a, as a group, unified together, are crying out to God that God would come to their aid and deliver them. And so it starts out with a prayer for deliverance. And David says, help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Nobody's loyal anymore. Nobody is trustworthy. And now think about it from the perspective of David for a moment. Uh, He had people in his life that betrayed him, didn't he? And so even within Israel, within the people of God, or at least supposed to be the people of God, he had people who betrayed him. Uh, His own son conspired against him and betrayed him. Uh, He had generals, commanders under him who were working against him at different times. And so he knows what it is to be, um, to have to deal with people who are not faithful, people who uh, are not loyal. But even with, even then kind of extending that 
outward. Um, David, as king of Israel, lived in the midst of the nations, and those nations couldn't be trusted. So there might be times when David might enter into an agreement with a neighboring country, and maybe that, that country reneged on its agreement, on its um, treaty that they had. And so David is constantly wrestling within his own kingdom, but also in the kingdoms around him. He's wrestling with unfaithful and disloyal people. Well, how about Jesus? Jesus is the greatest son of David, right? Did Jesus ever wrestle and deal with unfaithful, disloyal people? He had one in his own group of 12, didn't he? One of his own group of 12 that had spent uh, the most time with him, other than perhaps um, John and Peter and James in the inner circle, Judas was one of the closest people to Jesus during his public ministry and in the end betrayed him and betrayed him with the most um, despicable sign that you could use to betray someone with a kiss of love, of greeting, of friendship. And with that, that was the sign that he was handing him over to the centurions to be arrested. Jesus dealt with unfaithful and disloyal people. What about us? Have you ever had anybody betray you? Maybe you put your confidence in somebody. Uh, You trusted them with some news that you didn't want people to share. Uh, You trusted them with finances, perhaps. Um, and they betrayed you. We've, we've encountered that in our lives. And if you haven't, then you've probably lived a short life, and you will at some point uh, deal with those who are unfaithful and who betray us. And so David's own experiences in his own life kind of become generalized as a principle that the world is full of faithless and ungodly people. And he's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. So in verse 2, he says, everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. So David is being slandered by, uh, plotted against by people who apparently profess their friendship and loyalty to David. So on the one hand, to the face of it, they say, David, we've got your back. David will will protect you. David, we're loyal to you. But then behind his back, they're stabbing him in the back and they're betraying him. So they're saying one thing to him, but they're saying something else. and They're doing other things uh, behind his back. That is not how God's people should be. So David is describing here one of the characteristics, one of the fruits of ungodliness. That is those who are who are two faced, who are hypocrites, who say one thing on the outside, but in the inside means something else. And David is lamenting over the fact that the world is full of these kind of people. They're just everywhere. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They mean one thing, but they do something. They say one thing, but they mean something else. So he's crying out to the Lord. And here's his prayer. His petition comes in verses 3 and 4. He says, may the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. So David is now praying for God to intervene, isn't he? So in the first couple of verses, David was just kind of expressing his frustration that there's unfaithful people, deceptive people. Now in verses three and four comes the request that God would come and do something about that. 
And, and that request is based on the character of God, isn't it? That God is truth, that God is righteous, and that God in his justice will act and, and will take care of injustices against God's people when they happen. So he's praying for God to silence them. It, it's, a, it's a prayer for judgment, isn't it? It's a prayer for judgment, for God to come and judge those who are evil. Specifically, those who say, quote, by our tongues, we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? It's a pretty arrogant taunt, isn't it? And it's interesting that in this psalm, there's an emphasis on the words of people. And you see that all all through the psalm. So I titled this psalm, Faithless People and the Faithful God, but you could also say the, the faithless words of people and the faithful words of God. Because the, the lying, deceptive, flattering words of people are going to be contrasted with the pure, faithful words of God later in the psalm. So here he, the emphasis is on people who say one thing and do another and who are liars, deceivers, flatterers, and with their own tongues seem to be expressing an arrogance that they're going to get away with what they're doing. Who's going to come and judge us? We're going to prevail. We're, with our smooth talking, we're going to prevail and we will have a defense. Who is going to lord over us? Who's going to hold us to account? Who's going to judge us for this? And so they were deceptive and they were arrogant. And David is praying for God to intervene. We can do that, right? Can we pray? How, let me throw this out there to you um, and just as a discussion. How do we balance two thoughts here? One is God has given us a command to love everyone, right? God has given us a command to love everyone, even our enemies, even people who do things like this to us. Uh, God has given us as a church uh, a great commission, to go and preach the good news to people, to see them repent and be saved. But so then can we pray a prayer like David, Lord, come and judge? You see what I'm asking there? So he's given us a command to love and to witness to our ungodly neighbors. But can we still at the same time, while fulfilling that, also pray for the justice of God to come? What do y'all think? Yeah, you're you're not certainly not taking it into your own hands, right? Not seeking your own vengeance. And and Paul says that he quotes from Deuteronomy and Romans twelve and says, uh, "Vengeance is mine; I'll repay," saith the Lord. So definitely, that's I think it's a good point. Is David's praying for it, but he's still ultimately leaving leaving it in the hands of God. It seems kind of uh, paradoxical, doesn't it? I mean, on the surface, it seems paradoxical. But somehow we have to see that that in, I think, our prayers and our desires can mirror that of God's. Because in the same God, in the same God whose character is perfect and altogether coherent, we have a God who is long-suffering and merciful, but he's also a God of justice and righteousness, isn't he? So I think we can have a, a prayer for God to save people, to rescue people, to uh, be, for God to be long-suffering with people, 
But at the same time, I think we can pray for God to be just and for his righteousness to come and for all of his character uh, to be demonstrated. And I think the key is kind of along the lines of what Lottie was saying is that uh, we, we just, we trust God in the sovereign dispensing of that. So there are times when God's going to show mercy and long suffering. There's times when he's going to bring chastening or judgment. And obviously in the end, when Christ comes as judge, that's all totally in the, the sovereignty of God, isn't it? So I think we can pray these things, but ultimately we're leaving it with God. And we, we just have to trust him as Habakkuk says, uh, the ones who the, the just, they live by faith. They, they trust in God. When Habakkuk was wrestling with similar things and justices, his solution is the just, the righteous. They just have to live by faith. They have to trust in God and his justice and his timing. But David prays, God intervene, God rescue us, God be righteous and just. And then in verse five, he's going to reflect on what the Lord has already said on the promises of the Lord. And so verses one through four have been the words of the psalmist crying out to God. Now in verse five, he's going to give the words of the Lord, which are his promises. So verse five says, because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. It's interesting, isn't it, that David mentions in this the promises of the Lord, and specifically with respect to those who would be considered weak and vulnerable in society. And so maybe part of what David is lamenting in verses 1 through 4 are injustices that he sees going on around him. So when he says in verses 1 through 4, everyone lies to their neighbor, everyone flatters, Maybe he's talking about the fact that he sees people making promises to one another and not fulfilling those promises. He sees rich people hiring laborers and then not fulfilling their obligations to pay those laborers. And so maybe that's why he comes back in verse 5 and mentions those who are weak and poor in society. uh, Because there are some who are over them who are not fulfilling their obligations to them. And and so David says, God's going to arise. So in verses 1 through 4, he was praying for God to do this. Now in verse 5, he takes hope in the promise that God will. And based on God's own words, that the Lord will intervene. So the Lord's going to arise and he will protect them from those who malign them. Let's apply that to our lives for a moment. Uh, We see all kinds of injustices going on around us, don't we? Uh, we? That can take the form of you know, our own personal lives and people do things to us, maybe on a small scale injustices. We can see it on a global scale, great injustices, whole national injustices where people are oppressed and going hungry and and people enslaved. And David has hope here that God at some point will arise. And he will fix all of that. So we can look around us and we can see the injustices and we can see things that are wrong. But we can have hope that God will one day make things right.
And so we trust in a God who will arise, God who is just and righteous. And then in verse 6, you see some more reflection on the promises of God. And I think verses 5 and 6 are really the heart of the psalm. Because in verses 5 and 6 is where we see the promises of God. And now in verse 6, David is reflecting on those words of God. And what he's saying in verse 6 is in direct contrast to the words of the faithless people that he's been talking about in the rest of the psalm. So whereas in verses 1 through 4, people are liars, they're flatterers, they're, they're proud, they're arrogant with their words. God's words are not like that at all. God's words, he says in verse 6, are pure, they're flawless. He says the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times, which is really just a, a you know, he's, he's, brought, he's bringing in the imagery of refinery, of purification process, but he's just using that as a figure of speech, as a, as a symbol for the, the intense purity of the words of the Lord, that, that the most flawless and purified metals that you could ever find, God's words are even more so. God's words are refined and pure to the utmost, which is the idea of seven times. It's, they're perfectly flawless, perfectly pure. And I think verse 6 is directly related to the words of the Lord in verse 5. So verse 5, David quotes the Lord, which is a promise of protection and deliverance for those who are oppressed. And in verse 6, David says, you can trust those words. You can trust those words, those promises of God, because God's promises are true and pure. So verse 7 and 8, he returns to a prayer. He returns to talking to the Lord. And in verse 7, he says, You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. So this is now based on the promise of God, kind of a generalized promise. He says in verse 5, God's going to arise and defend those who are oppressed. Now in verse 7 and verse 8, he personalizes that. He, he, ta he takes that and talks and, and applies it to his own life and the life of God's people. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe, and you will protect us forever from the wicked, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. I couldn't help but think about verse 8 and just think about the current cultural situation that we find ourselves in. When at least, you know, there have there been times in world history when what is vile is honored by the human race? Well, sure. I mean, absolutely. You can, you can walk through history books and you can see many, many times when what is wicked, what is evil, is held up and honored and esteemed by wicked people. Ancient times all the way through. But for us, I think in our recent history, in our cultural context, I think what we're experiencing in the last 10 years or so is quite new. In that we're seeing a, a rapid increase of taking that which is vile 
and unholy and against God's moral laws. And it is held up as now the standard of what is virtuous. It's, it's exactly flipping things on its head, isn't it? And calling what is evil good. And that's what we see all around us. To the point now where if you, as a believer in Christ, try to uphold that which is, according to God's standards, true and honorable and virtuous, you are despised. You are hated. You are persecuted. And those who embrace this new worldly ethic, they're lifted up. And their, their, their pictures are put on the front of magazines as heroes because they're embracing now this new ethic. Everything's backwards. So what do we do as God's people in the midst of this backward context that we find ourselves in? I think we have to trust the promises of verses five and six that the Lord is going to deliver his people. At some point, the Lord, the Lord will arise and he will bring justice. And those words can be trusted because those are pure words, refined words. You can anchor your lives to those. If you listen to the people of the world, their words are all of, are always contradicting each other, tripping over each other. They say one thing one day and say something else the next day. And there's no consistency at all. But God's words are true, aren't they? They're pure. They're trustworthy. They're unchanging. You can build your lives on them. Verse 7 says that the Lord is going to keep the needy safe. He's going to protect his people from the wicked. Now, does that mean that believers will never face hardship or persecution from unbelievers. Not at all. I mean, you can read even in the Old Testament, David faced hardship at the hands of unbelievers. The prophets who spoke the truth often faced hardship at the hands of the ungodly. And then into the New Testament, Jesus warns his disciples, you should expect persecution. You should anticipate people to hate you because they hate me. So there are going to be in God's administration of his world, there are going to be believers who are persecuted and who die. So how can God say the Lord's going to protect those? He's going to protect his people from the wicked ones. I think we have to take it from an eternal perspective, don't we? Because Jesus died at the hands of ungodly people. Many of his apostles died at the hands of ungodly people. Does that mean the promises of God are meaningless? No, not at all. God's promises are true because Jesus himself said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul. And so God is going to protect his people. It may not be exactly the way that we think it should happen in this world, but from an eternal perspective, God will never forget about his people. And even if we face hardship and difficulty and slander in this world, and even if that's our whole existence in this world, that's just a blip on the radar of eternity, isn't it? And, and you think, who would, are there people like that? Yes, there are people like that. People who live in, in 
difficult places right now in the world. They're Christians, and they're living in perhaps the Middle East, places of, in Africa, places in Far East Asia, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is the enemy. And if you're a Christian, you, you say like Paul, we face death every day. And there are some who are persecuted often and all throughout their lives, and many face death because of their beliefs in Jesus Christ. They may face hardship this entire world, their entire lives, because of their faithfulness to Christ. And you might say, how does this promise apply to them? Because they have an eternity with Christ forevermore in a new body, in a new heavens, and a new earth that can never be taken away from them. So often we focus on this life, don't we? We focus on the now, the here. But when God's promises to his people are so much bigger than that, they're eternal. And so we can put our hope in God and we can trust in him because his words are pure. Even though we live in the midst of an ungodly world, we have a faithful God. And he will protect us from unfaithful people. Maybe not the way that we would want. But in the plan of God and the eternal perspective of things, he will keep his promises, won't he?